I've always been interested in people's behaviour. I think HR has had a big learning curve over the last couple of years. We're seeing people move out of the jobs that you might describe as being more in the rat race. Hello and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Emma Parry. Dr. Parry is a professor of human resource management and head of changing world of work group at Cranfield School of Management. She's recognized as an expert in human resource management and plays a leading role in a number of global research projects in this area. She's currently writing a white paper on well-being in 2022. Emma, it's wonderful to have you uh, on the podcast. I'd like to start by asking you about your job. You went into the world of academia. Uh, you're focused on uh, employment, employees. So what was it that decided you on a career in academia? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. To be honest, I just fell into it. I've always been interested in people's behaviour. So when I finished school, I did a psychology degree. It was the obvious thing to do. Um, I carried on and did a master's in occupational psychology and a PhD. Uh, and I loved the subject. But to be honest, at that stage, I was really determined to get out of academia. You know, I, I went off traveling for a year. Then I um, decided I wanted to get into consultancy because I thought that was where the money was. Then I spent some time reflecting and thinking about what I wanted to do. And someone pointed out to me that when I talked about research and my PhD and my subject, I lit up, apparently. And that made me reflect. And then at the same time, I was asked to come and work on a job at Cranfield that involved working on a research project. And I did that and I've never really looked back. And I've been at Cranfield uh, in various roles from a researcher up to the professor role that I have now for 20 years. So... And what has been the most enjoyable thing for you about your job over the last 20 years? Uh, it's still research. I mean, research is what hooked me. And I'm still really, really passionate about understanding how people behave at work and why they behave in particular ways. And then how organisations can create conditions that facilitate well-being in this case or performance or satisfaction or commitment so it's still really that driving interest about behavior and that passion for research but I guess particular interests have changed over time so over the years I've become fascinated in two things um, firstly about the context and how the changing context influences how people behave and people's attitudes and then what we need to do as HR people or as leaders to manage people um, in order to promote well-being and performance and so on and so forth. So I've done lots of work on things like emerging technologies and how that affects people, uh, the economy, uh, demographic shift. And, you know, and so basically how things in the external context uh, affect people and therefore HR. 
Uh, and secondly, and perhaps more importantly for our conversation today, um, over time, I've become really passionate about how we can create a work environment that supports and nurtures employees. So when I first started, it was much more about performance. It was much more about, well, how can we encourage performance employees so that organisations can perform better, if you like. And over time, I think I've learned that what's actually important is how we develop, nurture, support and create a culture in which people are satisfied, committed and therefore perform well as well. And that's obviously where my interest in well-being comes from. So let's dive into those two areas of research. And, and if okay. we can start with the, the changing world of work, and there's no doubt that over the last two years with COVID, there have been some particular shocks to the way we all work. So what's your research saying now? And what have you learned about the way work is changing and how that will affect people? Uh, well, a couple, yes. I mean, what a couple of years we've had. I mean, I've been working on the changing world of work for some years and at no point have we ever predicted you know a pandemic seriously and the impacts that that's had i mean i think moving forward it's important to realize that most of the trends that we talk about in work are not new but some of them have changed or accelerated as a result of the pandemic so the one that we're all talking about of course is working from home we've all always talked about flexible working and people working from home but actually it was a relatively low level of people working from home prior to the pandemic and now of course we've been forced to work at home many of us a large proportion of the workforce for some of the last two years and we're expecting more and more people to want to work at home or in a hybrid way moving forward and then we also see technology uh, you know, accelerating as well in the in the way that it's used. So, for example, things like robotics, artificial intelligence, we were seeing quite gradual increase in use prior to the pandemic. And now we've really seen organisations adopting technology, both for collaboration and communication, of course, because that's become really important, but also using robotics for things like cleaning, manual tasks, and so on and so forth, because obviously it's much safer and it's been the only way to do it at times in the last couple of years. From an HR professional's point of view, how they needed to adapt? How do they need to think differently now? Um, that's a good question. I think HR has had a big learning curve over the last couple of years. Whereas before HR is an organisation that likes to plan and planning is important. I think what HR has learned is that sometimes actually we need to move quickly and we need to be prepared to move quickly and to make changes without crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. And I think that's something that's very uncomfortable to HR um, because we're a planning organisation. So I think we've learned in a way how we can respond quickly and be more agile um, as part of the organisation. And of course, we've taken the organisation to some degree with us because we've had to adapt very quickly in relation to working at home in office-based environments and adapting to the new conditions in which we've been working. Um, I also think what's happened, which is a good thing in my mind, is that I think the value of HR to the organisation has really been realised over the last couple of years. Because of course, you know, this became a people issue very quickly. It became about how can we keep people safe during the pandemic, whether that's about frontline workers. And we mustn't forget, of course, that lots of people haven't been able to work at home 
so have had to carry on on the front line. So we mustn't just talk about office-based workers. But, you know, so HR has been at the front line of trying to keep people safe, of adapting to how people can work at home, at thinking about how we adopt technologies, about how we change leadership styles, about how we build a psychologically safe culture in the organisation, um, about how we adapt to having people working at home. You know, and they've all been HR and people issues. So I think there's been a real recognition of, of the value of HR, which is something that actually, you know, as an occupation, I think we fought for a lot over previous years. So in a way, it's a good thing, even though obviously it's been a terrible situation that's led us to it. And, and it looks as though working from home is going to be a, a major part of the future for most organisations. But are there any other trends, big trends that you see the workforce uh, and HR having to wrestle with? Yeah, I mean, there are a few things happening, I think, in relation to what people want from the workplace. I mean, what we've seen over the last couple of years, again, is that we've seen people reflect. I mean, when we go into a period of crisis, especially for people that have been on furlough or, you know, working in a different way, um, I think we've seen people reflect on what they want out of their careers and that's brought a few things into the spotlight um so well-being is one of those and i know that's an interest of yours you know i mean we're really at the moment beginning to battle with this thing called the great resignation where we're seeing people move around in the labor market in the us more than perhaps in the uk at the moment although we're beginning to see that and some of that is because people have realized that they want something different from the workplace so some of that is about well-being. Some of that is realizing, well, you know, perhaps I'm not as happy here as I might be. Perhaps my employer doesn't look after me as I would want them to. You know, perhaps this place isn't as good for my social well-being or my emotional well-being as it might be. Um, some of that is about what we get from the work that we do. So over time, we've seen this growing emphasis on people wanting to do a job that's meaningful. So people wanting to make a difference to society, you know, and make a difference in the organization, but actually more broadly to make a difference in the world. The pandemic, I think, has really, really highlighted that because people have really thought about their priorities and perhaps thought, well, actually, you know, actually, I want to do something that's got more meaning, that's got some intrinsic meaning to me, where I feel as though I'm really making a difference. So I think we're seeing people move out of the jobs that you might describe as being more in the rat race, you know, the jobs that are more about the money, you know, that, that are more about kind of long hours and making the money to jobs that actually have more meaning for them. And then alongside that, of course, we've seen people think about, you know, how they work, the hours they work, you know, and think much more about work-life balance. And I think those are things, um, are attitudes that we will see carry on into the future. Um, that employers will really need to grapple with when they're trying to attract people. Because one of the things we know about people in the workforce now is that actually um, they will leave if they're in an organisation that they're not happy in. You know, if they're not getting what they want intrinsically or subjectively for an organisation, then they are prepared to look elsewhere. So these things around meaningful work, work-life balance um, and well-being, I think, are really important for people. So they're the things that are really moving forward for me i think how about inclusivity and diversity there there's a there seems to be a lot more talk now about yeah. uh leveling up so social mobility yeah. obviously particularly after the, the george floyd murder a lot more around black lives matters and equality around 
gender, race, um, uh, around disability, etc. So how much of a, a growing theme do you think that's going to be? I think it is, a it is a growing theme. And I think certainly for younger people, people that are entering the workforce now, it's really a hygiene factor. So people will not work in an organisation where, you know, that an organisation that isn't inclusive or an organisation that isn't diverse. Um, so it's become much more than something that's preferred and something that's actually a, a deal breaker within an organisation. I think there's a few things that's happened in relation to inclusivity. I mean, I think it's come to the forefront of everybody's minds because of things like Black Lives Matter, because obviously before that, things like the Me Too campaign as well, of course, you know, we've seen we've seen a lot of that happen over the last few years. And I think what's important here and what we'll see moving forward, actually, is that I think we'll begin to move away from the lines of diversity that we talk about in law. So historically, you know, we talk a lot about gender. Uh, we talk a lot about ethnicity and so on and so forth. But actually, I mean, you mentioned um, social class and social mobility. You know, I think we'll see different axes of diversity, if you like. So inclusion will become much broader, which I think is a fantastic thing. And I'd really like to see it. Um, you know, and we'll begin to talk about an inclusion in a more holistic sense, rather than thinking about, you know, well, do we have equality between men and women? Are we inclusive of men and women? Are we inclusive of ethnic minorities? I think we'll begin to think of inclusion more broadly, which is really important, in my opinion. And, and then you also touched on technology. Um, where do you think we are on that curve of technology disrupting the way people work and what's going to happen going forward? Uh, well, a couple of things to say about that. Um, firstly, technology disrupting the way we work is nothing new. You know, I mean, it's been disrupting the way we work for, you know, for a very long time. I mean, we're recording this now on Zoom. I mean, we probably wouldn't have been doing that two years ago, perhaps, let alone, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so technology has been changing the way we work for a long time. There is a rhetoric out there that we, you know, that we have this very fast acceleration of technology that uh, robots will steal all of our jobs in 10 years time um, and that we will, you know, everyone will be unemployed. I'm not a believer of that uh, for a number of reasons. I think this is this curve is actually more gradual than we sometimes think it is. It has accelerated, as I said, because of COVID-19 and faster adoption of technology. But actually, it's a relatively gradual curve. And what we're seeing um, is firstly, we're seeing technology being used more to augment humans than to replace them. So, you know, so we're seeing like, I mean, Zoom is a good example of that. It helps communication and collaboration, but we're also seeing technology um, such as things like augmented reality that help people do their jobs by overlaying information on what they're trying to do. We're seeing obviously analytics and data that comes from technology and data processing helping us to do our job and I see well I think we'll see augmentation and even the use of AI um, or machine learning to augment human capability for a long time before we're really really um, beginning to replace people at significant scale. I think it's really important to realize that technology actually creates more jobs than it gets rid of. So jobs are changing. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, there's some figure that we haven't, you know, in 2030, we, you know, something like 80% of the jobs we don't even know about yet because of technological advancement. 
Um, and I think that's important because we have this idea of technology being very negative and automation removing our jobs. And to some degree, that's obviously true. And jobs do change. And there's a responsibility for employers in that. But I think augmentation and job creation is also an important part of this. So you, you've talked about four big shifts for HR managers to think about uh, working from home and how that may affect the workforce and its culture. You've talked about individuals wanting to get more from their work, a great sense of purpose uh, and a belonging. We've touched on inclusion and various groups feeling more included in the workforce. And we've talked about technology and the role that will play. So do you think the job of um, the HR community has changed? Do you think it needs a different skill set? How, how do you feel all those changes are going to play out now in terms of how HR do their job? Um, that's a good question. And I would add a fifth, actually, because I still think we have, despite the fact that we're living in a very local world at the moment, I think globalisation is still a fifth trend, you know, and the way we operate, even if it's technologically based, is still going to be increasingly global in the future, which also has implications for HR. On the one hand, I think that the HR job, the basics of the HR job have not changed. You know, a good HR function or good HR management is about the same thing. So it's still about supporting employees. It's still about it's still about talent acquisition and development. It's still about uh, promoting well-being. It's still about engaging employees and so on and so forth. So I think the basics of the HR role have not changed. The context in which we operate is changing. And I think the way that we do the HR job is changing, potentially, um, because of those trends. But fundamentally, we are still trying to develop a workforce that is capable um, satisfied, committed, and healthy. And one of the things that um, I, I reflect on is whether the HR community have the data research that they need to be able to tackle all of those things in the most effective way. And I think back to my time running Waitrose, and I think about the data that was available to finance or distribution or or uh, sales, you know, how many people went through a till and how quickly they went through or um, how many lorries were moved and how much they had on them and how many seconds a line was off the shelf for. And I I'm struck, and I don't know if you'd agree, that it feels as though the HR community have far less data at their disposal to make informed decisions. I think that's true, but I think it's changing. So I think HR is definitely behind the curve compared to some other functions. You know, you would have said the same probably of marketing 10 years ago, and marketing has really embraced data over the last um, few years. Um, but I do think that's changing. I mean, there's a real emphasis on the mo at the moment on evidence-based HR and really drawing on data to make HR decisions. Um, so there's a real emphasis on people analytics, on gathering good data, or, and on using it to answer questions in a in a predictive sense, you know, so we've moved away and we're really beginning to move away, I think, from, you know, collecting data on our workforce so we can say, you know, how large is our workforce, how many women do we have, how many ethnic minorities, you know, the descriptive type of data. We're really beginning to move away from that to ask questions of data. 
and to begin to be able to say, well, actually, you know, this is happening in the organization. So let's collect data on this and uh, ask ourselves why that's happening. And then the next step from that, of course, is being able to predict what might happen in the future. And I wouldn't say everyone is doing this yet. I've done quite a lot of work looking at this and it's still we're still looking at some pioneering organizations in this field. But organizations really are beginning to use people data and importantly, connect that people data to business data to really answer questions about, you know, how do we need to manage our workforce in order to create business outcomes? You, you know, so, for example, I've um, recently been developing a case study of an organization um, that did some fantastic work looking at salespeople, you know, and actually what makes a good salesperson. You know, and then out of that analysis, they've completely revolutionized their recruitment and the impact on the bottom line has been ridiculous. Yeah. It's a simple question, but they've actually managed to collect data. Now they've collected bespoke data to do that. You know, and one of the problems in a lot of organizations is that we don't have the data to start with, as you say, but I do think that's shifting. Um, and it's very popular, as you might know, in HR at the moment, the idea of people analytics is very popular. But again, that's quite a move away from some of the traditional skills that you might subscribe to HR people, actually. So it, again, it's a change in the way that we're doing things. To go back to what I said, I think what we're trying to do is the same. But using a data-informed approach, which is really important and a good development, in my view, is a different way of achieving that. Turning, um, Emma, to your work on wellness, uh, and um, you're writing a white paper this year on wellness in the workplace. So tell us how that's important, why it's important, what people have to do to improve it. I mean, it's important for a lot of reasons. I mean, morally, it's important, of course, because we want a workforce that's well and healthy and enjoying life. But I think much more than that, I think what we've, what we've realised over time is that there's an intrinsic link um, between well-being and wellness uh, and things like employee satisfaction, employee engagement, uh, and therefore performance, of course. So actually, you know, if we're talking more about a business case, and I think the moral case should be enough, personally, but if we were talking about a business case, then of course we do understand much more now that actually well-being and wellness is linked through to performance and actually productivity. So, so it's really important, I think, to do that. And when you say wellness, talk about the pillars of wellness. What, what does it mean? So people generally talk about five pillars of wellness. Often when we talk about wellness, we focus on emotional wellness or well-being. You know, so, you know, so we focus on things, you know, our classic ideas around stress and burnout and mental health. And all aspects of wellness can be related to mental health. But often we focus on emotional well-being. Um, on top of that, um, though we also talk about physical wellness and of course that's something we focused on quite a lot over the last couple of years with the pandemic um, not surprisingly um, we talk about financial wellness so um, I did a piece of work four or five years ago about financial well-being and hardly anybody was really talking about it then I think in the last year lots of people have started talking much more about financial well-being um, and realizing the need for things like financial advice and financial planning um, and supporting employees financially. Um, we also talk about social well-being. Um, so do people have the social networks, the social support around them? 
Um, and then we also talk about digital well-being. Again, something I think that's come into the forefront in the last year or two. And really, digital well-being is much more about, you know, do we have the digital support that we need? And if we are using technology, do we have the competence to use that technology effectively? So for, from an employment perspective, this is really about, are we providing people with the right tools and are we providing them with the skills to be able to use those tools? Because otherwise we end up with this thing called techno stress, you know, which can be quite negative to well-being generally. Uh, and I'm sure lots of us have probably experienced techno stress in the last couple of years. Those of us that have been working at home and using um, conference calling, you know, type software to do that. So, and, and has wellness always been an issue or it's just more being made of it now? It's always been an issue. But awareness has certainly grown. I think, you know, I mean, if you think back to, if you think back a hundred years to the jobs that people were doing that were physically demanding, where, you know, where safety at work was not as good as it is now, we hope anyway, where people were, you know, were injured at work, you know, then, you know, then obviously physical wellness was a real priority then and a real problem. So it's always been a problem. I think over time we've become much more aware of emotional well-being and these other pillars of well-being um, and the influence that work can have both on negatively affecting those in relation to things like workload and burnout, for example, with emotional well-being, but also the role of employers and the organisation in creating a positive culture and a positive environment that can actually support well-being and healthy mental health. And, and should businesses, organisations be worried about um, well-being? I think potentially. I mean, over the last two years, what we've seen is a, is a dip in well-being, uh, generally, in emotional well-being in particular, for obvious reasons with the pandemic. We have seen some recovery in that, actually, over the last six months, probably because of optimism around, you know, vaccinations and so on and so forth, I guess. Um, but we're still seeing quite low levels of well-being for some groups, especially young adults, for example. So, so there is still something to worry about. And as I said before, I think we've really realised, actually, that well-being can, can have a knock-on effect on lots of other aspects within the organisation. We're also seeing, you know, massively increased levels of burnout and exhaustion at work. I mean, part of that is because of the pandemic. Part of that, I think, is trends generally that people are working longer hours and perhaps there's more pressure on people in the workplace. Um, so we are seeing, I think, a culture or an environment where actually there is potentially some problems with well-being here or on the horizon. But I think the important thing is that while this might not be anything new, it's always been a problem that employers should be aware of and actually should be worried about because we don't want our workforce actually getting to a position where they are burnt out or they have mental health problems or you know or financial problems to the degree that it's affecting their well-being so yes it would be and, the short answer to that and then emma is there a silver bullet is there something that companies can do that will improve things not easily and actually, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, because in the last couple of years, we've seen a very big industry grow around well-being, you know, both at an individual level. I mean, you know, lots of us have used apps like Calm and Breathe and these mindfulness apps. 
Uh, we've seen, you know, organisations introducing interventions around relaxation and mindfulness and yoga sessions and, you know, lots of stuff. And this is all great because it all increases awareness of well-being. Um, it does help people manage their own stress, um, you know, it, and it does make people reflect on their own well-being and the potential causes of those. But actually, it's a bit like putting a sticking plaster on a broken leg. You know, if the if the problems with well-being, if the root causes of well-being issues are at work and are to do with workload or a toxic culture or a lack of support or leadership, you know, that's negatively affecting people's well-being, then that's where we need to be looking. So for me, I think to really address these problems, we need to be thinking about the broader employee experience. Um, and quite often we think about employee experience and then we think about well-being separately. And actually, I'd like us to really think about these together because actually, you know, things like the culture, things like support, psychological safety, recognition, you know, leadership, relationships at work. Those are all things that we talk about in relation to employee experience, but are also really important for well-being. So, you know, so really, I think we need to take much more of a holistic view to well-being and think about those causes and how we can create the right culture within an organisation. Um, because if you're if you're in an organisation where you're overworked, you know, the leadership is toxic, you don't have enough support and the culture is having a negative effect on you. Doing an hour of yoga or resilience training is not going to make that much difference. No, I would completely agree with you, Emma. And uh, at Work Off a Business, we measure flight risk so we can see how many people in an organisation are thinking of leaving. Uh, we've got a wellbeing index. And we were asked to work with an organisation who um, uh, had got an engagement survey and they saw their scores getting worse and worse around wellbeing at work. And they'd introduced um, all the kind of things you're talking about, yoga classes, um, they'd got mental health first aiders and it was getting worse. And as you were saying, the real issue they had was they had a toxic culture and people were being asked to work till two in the morning. And as a consequence of that, those things had absolutely no impact whatsoever. So I would completely concur with you that it, it's holistically building a culture that's supportive and inclusive um, and understanding people's roles within it rather than necessarily finding the sticking plaster. That's not to say that sticking plasters aren't good and can't help and do more if you've got a good culture. And does your research say that? Is that is that reinforced in all the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the important thing at the moment is to think about the sticking plasters for a moment. There's a really big business emerging in well-being at the moment. But what we don't have is good evidence on these interventions in a lot of cases and whether they work. You know, so for a start, even if you do want to adopt a sticking plaster, it might be the wrong sticking plaster unless you take the time to really look at the evidence um, as to whether that intervention works. So we're seeing a lot of things, you know, coming out onto the market, you know, with vendors that are perhaps very persuasive or actually, you know, where people have done some analysis on their effectiveness, they don't work at all. Um, but, but the data would certainly suggest that actually you know, it's the organisational culture and the leadership and the line management and the relationships. I mean, I keep coming back to relationships in organisations because relationships are really important. 
Yeah. And too often we do see people saying, well, we're going to overwork our employees. I mean, not explicitly, but basically saying we're going to overwork our employees and then we're going to send them on to do yoga on a Tuesday afternoon. I mean, it, it doesn't work. And you can tell that it's one of my bugbears. So I'll stop ranting. But it's, <laughs> I'm going to be a, a, a bit mean now. And I'm going to say to you, before you've even written, it, written or finished your paper uh, on well-being uh, in 2022, what do you think? the main things you'll draw out are what is happening to well-being i think we'll see it continue to become more and more important i mean there is data out there not my own data but there is data out there that clearly shows that it's moving up the agenda of senior leaders so not just hr but you know but senior leaders so it is really getting into the boardroom as an issue which is a good thing um although the reasons it's getting into the boardroom might not be a good thing <laughs> So I think we'll continue to see that. I think we will continue to see this industry that I just mentioned grow around well-being. I think there's some really interesting stuff beginning to happen um, in relation to technology. Um, and I think we've seen this in the individual world. I think we're really beginning to see some of those technologies around well-being. So some of the apps that we might think about individually, um, things like the use of wearable technologies that some of us wear fitness trackers and so on at the moment. You know, we're beginning to see wearables and sensors um, being used more and more around broader well-being. We're uh, you're beginning to use them actually in some of our leadership development programs at Cranfield to look at well-being and mental health, which is quite exciting. Um, so I think we'll begin to see more of that technology in the workplace um, and using things like sensors and wearables to empower individuals to monitor well-being but also to help employers to monitor and manage well-being and I'd like going back to what I've just said I mean I'd like to think that we will really begin to look at the causes of well-being and we'll move away from this idea um, where we think a lot about employee experience in relation to engagement and performance which, which you know I mean employee experience has become this buzz phrase over the last two or three years that we talk about a lot but then we talk about it in relation to performance and engagement and really that we'll start thinking much more about well-being as part of that because for me the two are interlinked I mean well-being is a key part of the experience and experience is a driver of well-being so yeah you know, that's what I'd like to see really yeah, but I think you know but it, it will continue to be on the agenda and I think we'll see a lot of buzz around it and hopefully we'll begin to see some real moves forward because what we don't want to see of course is that this is a you know this is a fashion or a fad because of the pandemic and then as we move forward that actually it goes off of the agenda and we've seen that of course with inclusivity that you mentioned earlier a few times that it goes up the agenda and then it goes down the agenda so I'm hoping that neither inclusivity or well-being will fall off of the agenda for some time. And, and what our researcher at, at Workle has shown is that if there is a silver bullet, and you've mentioned it, it's the relationship you have with your line manager. So um, when people score their line managers as uh, zero out of 10, then they'll have a well-being happiness at work score of 24%. And then if they score the one, it goes up a bit and it goes up continually until if somebody scored their manager 10 out of 10, on average, they score 84%. And there is almost a perfect correlation, 99.9% .9 between how you rate your relationship with your manager and your well-being and your happiness at work. I agree with you completely that that is a critical thing 
if you're going to have a, a happy and engaged and a, a, a workforce that feel that they're cared for and looked after. Yeah, and we see that with everything. I mean, I've done a lot of work around diversity and inclusion, um, you know, around employee engagement and around well-being. And we see that over and over again. You know, policies and practices are not the answer here. I mean, they help, but it's that relationship with the line manager and having line managers that are, you know, that are well trained and developed and help to drive that positive culture that really make a difference. And my last question, Emma, sort of on that point, is we've seen middle management stripped out. And therefore, is it becoming harder for managers to give the kind of attention to their employees um, that they might have had historically? I mean, do we have to think differently about that relationship between a manager and their employee and how it's delivered and the training and development that those people have? I think it has become more difficult because we are, I mean, we are seeing obviously wider spans of control, which I think is what you mean in that, in that actually we're not seeing managers that have that day-to-day -day contact with a relatively small group of people that we perhaps would have done before. Um, I mean, for me, this is a, this is a bigger question around organisation design. I mean, I think it is becoming more difficult for individual managers. I think good managers um, will find innovative ways to do that. You know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I make lots of use of um, WhatsApp, for example, <laughs> you know, just to check in and have, you know, and actually just kind of have quick check-ins with some of my employees because I can't, you know, have face-to-face -face conversations with them all the time but I think really this is an organization design question and I don't and I think too often when we talk about organization design we think about efficiency and we don't think about the relationship side of things and actually as you say it's the relationships that actually promote well-being but also actually promote performance ultimately that are key to organizations in the long term so and in that context what responsibility do you think the employee has for their own well-being and engagement and happiness at work? Oh, I think they absolutely have responsibility. And I think ultimately in organisations, this should be about enabling and empowering employees to look after themselves, as well as creating a culture and an organisation that supports well-being. So there are two sides to this. You know, we've talked about the organisational factors that might positively or negatively affect well-being. That's the responsibility of the employer or the organisation, of course. But I think it's also about empowering and enabling employees to think about their well-being, to reflect on their well-being and to take steps to develop that. So it needs to be both, in my opinion. Thank you, Emma. Um... That was really insightful. Uh, I know we'll all be looking forward to reading your wellbeing report uh, in 2022, but Dr. Emma Parry, uh, Professor of Human Resources Management uh, at Cranfield, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.